our way back to our seats as we get ready to open God's Word together. Well, welcome, welcome, everybody. Something um, I, I didn't tell Jeremy to mention, but um, you might be interested in this, is that uh, Steinmetz has uh, another opportunity to chaperone on, I think it's Monday, October 23rd. I put it up on Facebook this past week. It's during the day, so I know that doesn't work for many of us, but if you happen to be available from 11 to 3.30, they're looking for chaperones to help out with a field trip um, to um, a place out in, in, I think in Lincoln Park area. Uh, so if you're interested in that, let me know. We've already got one person signed up for that, and this, again, is a great way to, to connect and to pray that God open doors for us to love the people in our community. Um, I was thankful just seeing the church family, as Estrella and, and Eddie mentioned, uh, serving our neighborhood. Um, being, being the hands and feet of Jesus in a real tangible way, guys. It, it's the real deal. God's doing something among us, and it's a, it's a joy to be a part of it. Uh, man, didn't we have a good time last week at our fourth anniversary celebration? Man, that photo booth was hopping last week. Uh, we had a great time just celebrating how faithful God has been to us here at the Brook. And, uh, and a word that I just kept coming to my mind then was that it's only been four years and how much more we believe God's going to continue to do through us, his people. I want to pray as we open uh, the scriptures together. I'm super excited to share with you guys about the Protestant Reformation and to unpack the scriptures and what it means for us today. So with that being said, let me pray and entrust our time to the Lord. Father in heaven, we praise your name. God, we thank you, Lord, for the men and women of the past in this country throughout Africa and Europe and Asia, uh, South America, God, all around, God, we, we praise you, Lord, for men and women who have drawn a line in the sand and say, God, we want to follow you no matter what. And so, Lord, we stand on their shoulders in so many ways, and, and we pray, God, that you would instill within each of us today who are children of God, who are followers of Jesus, instill within each of us, God, um, uh, a resolve, Lord, to follow you with the same kind of passion and conviction when life is dark and disappointing, and when life is high and happy, God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, be, be just thrilled, Lord, and, and, and energized in our faith. And Father, for those who are here today who don't know you, Lord, who are exploring the faith, trying to figure out um, how to make sense of life, God, I thank you that you've brought them. Lord, I pray that your truths, God, would pierce their hearts and that um, the good news of Jesus would become clear, maybe for the first time, and that their response may become clear. And Lord, they might submit themselves to you today, Lord. So we, we pray those things as well in faith. We pray for the surrounding churches in our community, God. We lift up New Life Community Church, Lord. We lift up uh, City Lights, Cross Culture, Bethany Baptist. Um, God, we lift up Victory Worship Center. God, there's so many others who are trying to strive to, to serve you and honor you in the Belmont Assembly of God. Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you, would, um, that you would work in those churches that you give leadership wisdom to preach your word faithfully, that your people in those churches would be bold and courageous about their faith as well, and that all of us as one church would be about your business, God, in this neighborhood. Do it, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, guys, uh, this is an exciting day. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on a door of a castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, sparking what we know now today as the Protestant Reformation. And so today, we're celebrating the 500th year anniversary of that. When you came in, you probably received the card like this. If you didn't get one, I know our ushers are in the back, right? If you, if you didn't get one, you'd like to get one, you can just raise your hand. We'll come over and get one to you. Um, on the back side of this, it's a brief summary of what the Reformation was about as well as five key points known as the solas that the Reformation spurred on. And uh, some of this I know is very foreign to many of us. And so I want to bridge a gap today. And what maybe is foreign to you today, you'd leave today saying, I, I've got a better grasp of these things. Uh, I'm going to be preaching in a moment. I'll begin there in a moment from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, which, which tells us, To do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It is a call to be men and women who know the Bible, who love the Bible, and who live the Bible. And as I share the story of the Reformation, you're going to see how men and women of the past loved God and his word. And I pray again that you leave today just spurred on to know him better. And as I prayed earlier, I know there's some of us today really just exploring the Christian faith. Um, I hope you could really get a grasp of what the faith is about. It's broken people, broken people for sure, but a perfect God who is so merciful to us. Well, it all began in the 1500s when some problems within the church, within the church have been, become quite exposed. It's interesting, that, you know, as I was thinking about this, here we are, 2017, and there are things that we enjoy that we don't even realize came from a heritage, like the very fact that this podium is in the middle of our stage. You see, ever since the 1500s, after the Reformation, Protestant churches like our own said, you know what, we want the pulpit to be at the center of our gatherings because through the pulpit, the Word of God is preached, the good news is declared. And that wasn't the case until the Reformation. Things that we take for granted, like the fact that I'm preaching the Bible and not preaching other things, stemmed from the Reformation. You see, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had began to spiral in some really deep and dark places. Things went from bad to worse, even within the popes. And uh, uh, two centuries before Martin Luther came on the scene, The popes, the leaders of the Catholic Church, and that's at the time there was a Catholic Church, a Roman Catholic Church, and that's what it was. And the popes had become very corrupted. The church had become very misled because they stopped studying, reading, and teaching the Bible. That's what it comes down to. The reason being is that in their understanding, the pope was the ultimate interpreter of the Bible. Therefore, whatever he taught is what the church was to believe and practice. Now, you think, that's, that's some pretty amazing authority. Essentially, the Pope began to speak with divine authority, and in many ways does still even today. And we know and we believe with all our heart and mind, the Bible is God's authority, not people. Even in Martin Luther's own day, the Pope in his day, Leo X, became a priest at the age of seven and a cardinal at 13. Not because he was some hyper-spiritual kid, but his family had power. And, and the Roman Empire um, within the church became, gave, gave you power. And he became the, became the Pope of the Holy Roman Empire 
at 38 years old, which is tremendously young. Leo X was known to be a man who loved to flaunt his power, loved to spend money, and build great things like St. Peter's Cathedral, as we see in, in Rome today in the Vatican. Well, Martin Luther was raised in this environment where the Pope had such grand authority, the Bible was not being studied, and ultimately the good news of Jesus became caged, if you will. There was this understanding that we needed to do more and work harder in order to earn God's favor and hopefully become saved and, and get to heaven someday. There was this belief called nominalist theology that taught if you do your best, God will meet you in that place, and then you continue working hard to attain salvation. Basically, is what we know now today is God helps those who help themselves. This was the teaching in the Middle Ages. And we see in the Bible, this is a a really detrimental teaching. You and I know, and I don't know all of you real well, I know most of you, and many of you know me, we, we're pretty messed up people. And we know no matter how hard we try to do things better and better, we often find ourselves falling on our faces with the best of intentions sometimes. And if our right standing before God was dependent on how well I did and you did, we'd be in hell tonight. And so that was the teaching in the 1500s and generations before. And when you would think with that kind of teaching, what happened is people began to try to serve God out of fear and not out of love. They tried their best to earn God's love, but the truth of the matter is when imperfect people stand before a perfect God, you've got no legs to stand on. And so this was the environment that was being brought up. Furthermore, the teachings of purgatory were coming to the forefront in, in strong ways. They've been around for several generations already, several centuries. It's not in the Bible, by the way, but it was developed through other books that are outside of what we believe are the Holy Scriptures. And the purgatory became a place, now, as now known as such, where after you die, if you did not do enough good works on this earth, you go to purgatory, where it means you are purged. That's what purgatory is. You are further purged, which means you suffer in purgatory in order to get rid of the rest of your sin so that you can get into heaven. And so the teaching was, do your best in this life and shorten your years in purgatory, but at the end of the day, you really never know if you've done enough. Purgatory was a place where you would suffer for your sins to get into heaven. If that wasn't bad enough, Pope Leo X needed some funding to, to build his St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican, and he began to sell things called indulgences. They were pieces of paper, but they came with a Pope's, the Pope's decree. And basically, Leo X said, if you purchase this piece of paper, which comes with my authority, and as Pope I speak as one who speaks for God, you can shorten the years in purgatory for your loved ones who've died already. And you can get them into heaven sooner. And you could also purchase indulgences so that when you die, you can shorten your own years in purgatory. In fact, there was a man named Johann Tetzel who was the preacher of this message. He'd go into different villages trying to fundraise, telling people to buy indulgences to shorten their years in purgatory and again to heaven someday. And he'd use these dramatic storytelling forms. And in fact, he's known to say this phrase. He says, as soon as a coin in the chest rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's pretty smooth, huh? 
So you have this treasure chest, and people would drop their coins in, and ching, just that quickly, your family member's out of purgatory. And as a loving family member, it's like, well, goodness, man, for a buck fifty, I better send, you know, family member out of... But, but you never knew if you gave enough to get them out. So people keep going and giving in and giving money and giving money. Needless to say, things are pretty corrupted. And it's even hard to believe that such things would fly. But that's what happens when you take the Bible out of the hands of people. When man who has fallen stands as the authority in your life, speaking for God, many, many dangers are close by. And that's what happened. I just think about it. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, says this about the Bible. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible revives the soul. And to take it out of the hands of people is to withhold a source of revival. Truthfully, it's cruel to not give the Bible into our hands. The psalmist goes on to say, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He goes on to say, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. What do you say if you don't have the Bible in your hands? And that's what happened. Think about how scriptures were caged during this time. But God says the grass withers and flowers fade, but my word will endure forever. And though many in the Catholic Church had kept the Bible at wraps and kept it away from people, God had other plans and he used someone named Martin Luther to do it. We are indebted to this man's sacrifice. He was not a perfect man, let me just say. Sometimes we have a way of... um, making people in the past better than they were. He was not a perfect man. He was flawed just like you and I are. But God used his courage to spark something amazing. Martin Luther was raised in a German family. Dad wanted him to be a lawyer, make some money, help out the family, right? Well, one year, one year he's on his way home from school, studying, and he gets a storm, kind of like we had yesterday, a crazy storm. And all of a sudden, lightning's flashing like crazy, and, and Luther's all of a sudden like, I'm going to die today. Like, this is the end of me. And he starts praying. He's crying out. And he prays to St. Anne, who was the patron saint of minors, and his dad was a minor. He's like, help me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. Well, as God would have it, Luther didn't die. And he felt compelled. He's like, God spared my life today, and I'm going to keep my vow to God. I'm going to become a monk. So he joined a monastery as a Catholic young man. And in the way the monasteries worked, for the first year, um, it was a trial period, whether or not you're going to commit your life to the monastery. And then after that year, you, you kind of sign on the dotted line. And in retrospect, Luther would say the devil was quiet during the first year. But after he signed on the dotted is when he stepped up his game. Luther was overwhelmed with his guilt and shame, felt like he was always condemned by God. Maybe some of you have been like that in your own stories. Maybe you've been raised in a place in the Catholic faith or another faith that just says, you've got to do more and be better and God might love you more. 
And so when you do bad, you feel like God doesn't love you. When you do good, you feel like he does love you, but you don't know if you've done enough, and, and your mind is just racing. And that's, that was Luther's life. And so what he did as a monk, he tried to be better and do better and work harder. He said he would go to bed at night in the winter without a blanket, hoping that he, by making his body suffer, he could kind of suffer for his own sins and earn God's love. He would fast and pray more than anyone else did, trying to do better. He says this, he says, if ever a monk could get into heaven by his monkery, it was I. He'd go confess his sins over and over to the priest, to the fact that they just got tired of him coming in. In fact, his father, Johann von Staupitz, says, he told Luther one day, he says, Luther, man, go out and commit a real sin, then come back and confess that, all right? Because Luther would say he'd go in and confess his greed and then walk away being proud of the fact that he confessed. And he'd go right back in, I'm struggling with pride now. Confess his pride. And they're just like, dude, you're driving me crazy. But, but he was a man who understood that he was messed up. I think sometimes we live as strangers of our own souls. We don't know how messed up we really are. And it was Luther's overwhelming feeling that God was angry at him, that he needed to do something that drove him just mad. God, I need help. It's really cool to see that this man, this priest, Staupitz, was a man who told Luther, you know what you need to do? You need to read the Bible. You need to meditate on God's grace. You have to look at the cross where Jesus died for you. Meditate on those things. The last thing he says, you know what, Luther? You need to get out of this monastery. It's going to drive you crazy. You need to go become a teacher. Luther was a bright man, very studious. Became a doctor in, I think it was 1512. And so he went to the University of Wittenberg in Germany and began to lecture on the books of Psalms, Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews. And as he taught his students verse by verse, he came across Psalm 31, verse 1, where it says this, In your righteousness, deliver me. And Luther just looked at that and said, That makes no sense to me. Because God's righteousness is the very thing that condemns me. God is perfect, and I'm not. How can he deliver me? And he just began to wrestle with those passages. And he came to Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And he's like, there it is again, God's righteousness, his justice, it's only going to condemn me. And he began to pound on the text. Lord, show me how your righteousness gives me life. What Luther began to understand was this, that God's righteousness, his perfection, was made available to messed up Martin Luther through Jesus. And he realized it wasn't based on his good works, but on what Jesus had done for him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not by your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one could boast in it. And I just, I wonder, Erica and I were talking about this last night, I just wonder what it was like when he was alone in his room and the lights went on. My salvation is dependent on Jesus and not on me. 
Some of us today, maybe you don't know that truth. You've just lived life and you've tried to be better. And you know that whatever you do just doesn't quite add up. And you just have this guilt and this fear of, if I die today, I'll be in hell in a moment. And that's how Luther lived, but he realized God has other plans. He sent Jesus to die for us. And so what Luther does, he pulls out a sheet of paper, and he writes down 95 proposals, 95 theses, challenging the Pope, challenging the teachings of the church, and opening it up for discussion. He takes his 95 theses, he nails them to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, saying, hey, let's talk about this. Never knowing what God was going to do through it. Someone grabbed the 95 Theses, ran it through a copier. The Gutenberg Press had come out just about 50 years earlier, and it spread like wild, wildfire. I want to read you a few, some of the 95 Theses. The first one says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. His sixth thesis says, The Pope cannot remove any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been removed by God. The Pope can't say you're forgiven. God has to say you're forgiven. And then my favorite, number 62, says, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. God's grace. We, we don't understand the, the amount of courage it took. Them. The Pope was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And when the Pope kicks someone out of the church, he essentially kicks you out of heaven. But Luther believed in the scriptures and went to it and challenged the authority of the Pope. Why did he do that? Well, he came to believe what 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about. Let's turn our Bibles there. That was introduction. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 Page 995 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Thanks for asking. As you turn there, if you don't own a Bible, take the one in front of you home. It sparked revival all throughout Europe, and to this day, 500 years later, we're talking about it. Um, God, through His Word, will change your life. So if you don't own a Bible, please have the one in front of you. The book of 2 Timothy was written by Paul, a follower of Jesus who once hated Jesus, a preacher who was once a persecutor, but now he's one advancing this good news message. And he's writing to Timothy, his protege, saying, hey, Timothy, I want you to, to um, teach God's people, to instruct them well. He says something to him in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Love that. Paul's like, here, I'm in prison telling you to preach the word, to be faithful. And though I'm bound up, let you know God's word is not bound. And it just drips with imagery as we think about the Reformation. Though many kept God's word at wraps, over, uh, under wrap, God was not going to let it remain there. And then he tells Timothy in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Timothy, do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, Timothy was a pastor, and I recognize there's only a few of us in this room who are. But you've got to understand something. Sometimes we think, well, Timothy's a pastor. Paul's writing to Timothy. This word's applied to pastors. But if it's only me, the pastor, who rightly divides the word and teaches it to you, then we're slipping back into the very thing that happened in the middle, middle, church, the middle ages of the church, where one person was the authority teaching everybody who never questioned it. So by application for all of us today, I hope and pray that you can trust me as a pastor who loves you guys, who's going to study the word rigorously, and I do that every week. But go back and test the words I preach. And so Paul tells Timothy, and he tells you and tells me today to do these things. He says, get on your grind for the sake of your growth, essentially. Look, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Do your best to present yourself as this. This is one word in the original language, which means make every effort. It means to to put in the time and the energy to understand something. In fact, the Greek word is where we get our English word speedo. And I'm thinking like, there's got to be a connection somehow. And the, the word means quick movement in the interest of a person or a cause. And so I went to Wikipedia this week. I'm like, does speedo actually, you know, come from this? And sure enough, they wanted to create swimwear that allowed you to be quicker in the water. And so, don't put on Speedos. But like that, get in the Word and be quick to do it, Paul is saying. He's like, get at it. Don't waste time in the water. Swim. Get in the Scriptures. Make every effort, he says, to study well. There's an urgency. There's a, there's a haste attached to this. And he says, make every effort. He says, do your best to do this. Do your best. Yours, yours, yours. I'm doing my best to give you the word, but you got to do your best to learn it yourself. Not in order to earn God's favor, but because God has shown you his favor and you love him. Put in the work. God, teach me and help me do this with an urgency. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved. This word approved means to come, something that comes by testing. I worked at a bank for about a year and a half before going into seminary, and I learned the difference between counterfeit money and real money, and I did get messed, I got tricked once, and I felt like such a fool at the end of the day, counting my drawer, pulled out a counterfeit bill, and I was like, oh, who did it? Like, I knew better because I had learned to test the bills. In the same way, Paul's saying, be one who's approved, one who's been tested, battle-tested. In fact, in the first century, there was a, uh, in the second century, there was a man named Polycarp who, who was killed for his faith. He was burned to death at an old age when he was asked to turn away from his belief. And after he died, his disciples came up to his burned body and saw his bones there. And this is what they wrote. They said, we afterward took up his bones as being more precious than the most exquisite jewel and more tested than gold. 
They said Polycarp's bones had been tested in the literal fire, but as well as the spiritual one, but he was shown to be approved. He was battle-tested. And Paul is saying, let's get at work to the Bible. Let's study the scriptures with haste and with urgency, being one who is tested and approved, saying, God, I am being faithful with your word. I'm not going to let this thing stay under wraps. See, when we take the Bible out of the hands of people, we take the sword out of the hand of a soldier. When we take the Bible out of the hands of a people, it's like taking oxygen out of the breath of a scuba diver. The arrow out of the hand of an archer. God has given us his word to preach it, to understand it, to learn it, to teach it, to live it. Show yourself as one who is approved. And he further goes on to say, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling it, dividing it down the middle, saying this is what it means. You've had a times where you've had to cut something, maybe a piece of fabric, and you've got the dotted line, and you want to cut a straight line because you want to do it accurately because if you get outside of the line, you're going to mess up the project. You pull out an X-Acto knife, you have it because you need some X-Acto measurement. You need to cut a straight line. You, you don't use jagged scissors to do that. In the same way, Paul is saying, you come to the Bible, don't go willy-nilly with it. You cut a straight line. What is God saying? What's he telling you to do? What's he have for us? To be faithful in that way, he says, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I love that phrase, word of truth, because there are two different meanings for it that I believe are combined into one. The first is this. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 13, I think it is, Paul says, uh, when you believe the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you were saved. And what Paul is saying here then is that this word of truth that God wants us to study is the good news of Jesus Christ. But where is the good news found? In the Bible. So on the one hand, God is calling us to be men and women who know the good news of Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand, who know the Bible where it is found. And this is what happened with Martin Luther. I mentioned to you he was pounding on the scriptures to understand what it meant for him. And he came to realize that his good works would never be enough because he was trying to rightly handle the scriptures. He, he, he understood he could not earn his way into heaven. He knew it was by God's grace that he was saved. When he understood this, he understood God's justice in a different way. On the one hand, it's true, God's justice does condemn sinful people. He's a perfect God, and he's a good judge, which means he punishes the lawbreaker, which we all are. So God's justice does condemn. But God's justice, his righteousness, has also been offered to us when we turn from our sins and ask his forgiveness. And God sees us through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, and declares us as forgiven. That came because he rightly handled the word of truth. He saw, Luther saw these things in the scriptures. This is why moralism will never save us. And even in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, it drove people to despair and to darkness because they can never be good enough. I love this poem I had heard once, which reminds us 
of our situation. It says, O long and dark the stairs I trod with stumbling feet to find my God. Gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it. Never progressing, striving still with weakening grasp and fainting will. Bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby. Down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. And while I lay despairing there, I heard a footfall on the stair. In the same place where I dismayed, faltered and fell and lay afraid, and lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. See, the good news of Jesus is not that we climb the ladder of good works to God, but that he stepped down to this earth to save us. When we know the word of truth, we understand these things. Furthermore, the word of truth is where the Bible speaks to us in studying the scriptures. Family, we, we talk often about this, and I just plead with you, man, to be men and women who study the Bible, who read it every day. You may not know what it's saying, and that's all right. But get in the word and strive to do it every day, every morning when you first wake up. Read a few verses, say, God, teach me, show me, and I plead with you to do that. Luther says this about the Bible. He says, for some years now, I've read through the Bible twice every year. If you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was said and what it meant. He said, I I, I didn't want any of the Bible to be foreign to me. I want to know it. I want to know the God that this Bible speaks of. I want to know this good news in a deeper way that is taught to me in the Bible. See, there's a right way and there's a wrong way of interpreting. And the wrong way of interpreting is putting ourselves as the authority of it, over it. And the right way is to submit ourselves underneath the Bible. In fact, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, had his own Bible known as the Jeffersonian Bible. And it was unique because Jefferson's faith was he was a deist, which means he believed in the God, but not a God who intervenes in our daily lives. Kind of like, like I mentioned last week, the fidget spinner, a God who, who intervenes every so often, but doesn't engage us. And so what he did was he cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't agree with, like miracles, because that means God intervenes, like the resurrection of Jesus. And he had a Bible that was trimmed down to fit his beliefs. Now, you may never put scissors to your Bible, but do we do that through practice? Are we rightly handling the word of truth, or are we seeing things in a Bible that we don't like and we try to ignore them? And saying, God, I'm not going to physically cut it out, but I'm going to cut it out of my mind right now. Your teachings on integrity. Your teachings on loving my enemy. Your teaching on reconciling relationships. Your teaching about being bold in my faith. Your teachings on how to submit to you. You can go on and on and on. and, And we all know in our hearts the kinds of things that we don't like being confronted with. But when we choose to cut it out, it's as if... We're doing what happened in the Middle Ages, picking and choosing what we want to believe. But instead, Paul tells us here 
do your best to show yourself as one who is approved, who is not ashamed of the way you're handling the Bible, rightly handling the word of truth. This is God's word for us. So do your best to get on the grind for the sake of your growth and for the sake of the truth. Well, what happened to Martin Luther? He nailed those 95 theses. They spread like wildfire. Well, as you haven't known, uh, they reached the Pope himself. And there began to become uh, become, uh, some concern within the Roman Empire because people all of a sudden weren't weren't buying indulgences like they had before. Because they're realizing, I can't pay my family members way out of purgatory. I can't pay my own way out of purgatory. I need Jesus. And so what happened was the Catholic Church sent some theologians to publicly debate Luther and challenge his beliefs. This happened several times, and finally in a place called Worms, there was a discussion that he had with the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and a leading theologian, Johann Eck. And they tested Luther, and they said, Luther, you must recant your teachings. You must say that they were wrong and turn away from it because if you don't do that, you know the stakes are high. In fact, most people believe at that moment he would be killed if he didn't recant. And he was pressured and pressured and he asked for another day to think about what he wanted to say. And the emperor granted him that day. The next day, Luther came back in front of them and he spoke these words which echo in church history. He says, unless... I am convinced by proofs from scriptures or by plain and clear reason and arguments. I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. And then he says, I cannot and will not recant for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. From that day on, Luther would live the rest of his life with a bounty on his head because he refused to recant. He refused to turn away from this good news of Jesus, that Jesus' righteousness is given to us and we could be forgiven. And from that day forward, that's how he lived. He says this, he says, Let them destroy my works. I deserve nothing better. For all my wish has been to lead souls to the Bible so that they might afterwards neglect my writings. Great God, if we had knowledge of Scripture, what need would there be of any of books of mine? He wanted people to be clear that it's the Word of God where the truths of God are found. But perhaps those are the most famous words of Luther, but they're probably not the most important. When Luther died in his deathbed in the small town of Eisenach where he uh, grew up, he, sta- he was there in his bed, and when he passed, someone found a piece of paper with scribbling in his pocket. They pulled it out, and this phrase was in it. And perhaps this summarizes his life, this summarizes the Reformation, and this summarizes all of us best. This is what he wrote. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. 
what Luther understood was this, and this is what we preach every Sunday at the brook, that apart from God coming down to us, we've got no shot ever of earning his love. And so we come before God as beggars saying, God, I need you. I think of blind Bartimaeus in the New Testament saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Church family, until we come to that place where we come before God saying, God, have mercy on me. I need you. Until we do that, we can't understand his forgiveness. And Luther wanted us and God wants us to understand that we're beggars. But begging not before a reluctant God, but a generous God who gave his one and only son to die for you and me so that we could be forgiven. While this good news became a faint flicker, it was never extinguished. Jesus says, my word will endure. Church family, I want us to treasure God's word, to study it for the sake of our own growth and for the sake of the truth of God and to share it with others. In closing, I want to share with you Martin Luther's most favorite, famous song he's ever written. And we're going we're gonna to sing it for a moment. Uh, not for a moment. We're going to sing it together in a moment. And for many of us, it's probably quite foreign. We don't know it too well. But I want you to hear the words of a man when all the world seemed to be against him, where he found his hope, where he found his comfort. And when you feel like all of life is just over you, you're, you're feeling discouraged, you feel like uh, you've got no way out, I want you to turn to the same place. In his song, A Mighty Fortress, this is what he says. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. He's talking about Satan here. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Luther understood that there's a spiritual battle and that Satan was real and he was mighty. But then he says this, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His confidence was in our God, who is a refuge for his children. So what I want us to do, I want us to rise to our feet here and to sing a mighty fortress together. 
You may not know it, but I ask you to try to catch along with us. And let's sing it as we believe that God is a fortress. And then after this song, we're going to have a closing song. And at that time, I'd love our prayer team to come forward and to, uh, to make yourselves available to pray with anybody. And if you have a prayer burden at any time, we'd love for you to pray with our prayer team. They're glad to, to come before the Lord on your behalf with whatever is on your heart. But family, let's sing A Mighty Fortress, believing that that's what our God truly is. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabaoth, His name. From age to age the same And he must win the battle And though this world with devils filled Should threaten to undo us We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness, Graham, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Say that last line again. His kingdom is forever.
this closing song here, family, I want us to remember that it is God who is our rock and our need for him is great. We need to depend on him. We need him in everything we do. So prayer team, would you come forward? Uh, and you'll be, they'll also be in the back. And if you've got a prayer need, if there's something that's weighing on you and you want to give it to God, um, our prayer team would love to pray with you. But let's express our need for God as we sing this closing song.